This is 105.9 The Region. There are so many ways of communicating these days, but nothing seems to beat the one-on-one. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Welcome to In Conversation. Thank you for being with us. This show is, in my view, up front, up close, and on the money. And she works hard for the money. She also helps the rest of us find, keep, and grow ours. Gail Vaz Oxlade is smart, logical, creative, clever, resourceful, and a no BS kind of dollars and cents expert. Her style is this fasten your seatbelts, batten down the hatches. It's going to be a bumpy ride to financial freedom. And with a personality like hers, you might actually enjoy yourself along the way. Please welcome to In Conversation, the mistress of moolah. The Queen of Cash, the Duchess of Doe, the Lady of the Looney, and the Destroyer of Debt, Gail Vaz Oxlade. Welcome. Thanks for having me on. What a long time it's been since we got to spend some time together. You were such a a shining light on breakfast television decades ago, and thank you for joining us then. And it's just a thrill to have you now, a few years later, on In Conversation. (laughs) Gail, how did it all get started for you? Many years ago, uh, I I was working for a management consulting company uh, that focused on training, and they said that I couldn't make any more money unless I went into sales and started doing my own consulting. So, you know, I bit down on it. I hated every minute of selling. I puked for a year while I picked up the telephone and did all the cold calling. And then I won a contract with a trust company to design a training program for RRSPs, which I did, and it was very, very successful. So they awarded me the contract to do it for every single product they sold. And that's how I got my financial education. (laughs) Did anything happen when you were a little girl in Jamaica before your family immigrated to Canada? You know, when I was a little girl, I used to take coins from my mom's change purse, and she knew I was doing this. I wasn't stealing. But I would sit and count them and move them around and pile them up and take them down. My mom used to call me King Midas. What what happened? <laughs> Were there signs of, of your financial um, fitness as a little girl? Well, my dad put me on a savings matching program when I was uh, probably around 12, and what he said was whatever I managed to save out of my allowance and my lunch money, that he would match it and we'd open up my first bank account. And so for the next six months, I didn't eat lunch. I saved every penny that I had because I was going to double my money. <laughs> so my next door neighbor had had a, an anniversary where they'd had a magnum of champagne and I had the bottle, so every time he gave me my allowance or my lunch money, I'd stick it in the bottle so I couldn't get it out. That's pretty smart. That's like putting a sailboat in in a bottle. You just can't get it out. (laughs) The thing is, is it was like the ultimate marshmallow test, you know. Can you wait? Yes, I could wait. I could wait six months to eat again. (laughs) But I used to go around school taking bites out of people's patties and um, taking sips out of their drinks and stuff. People helped me along the way. I think that's wonderful. You know, none of us is an expert when it comes to money, or most of us. You are an expert. How did you become so good at finances? Well, I think one of the things was because I 
came into it holistically because I was doing the training development and I got to see all the products. I learned how they all dovetail together. So, you know, I didn't just come out of an investment background or I didn't just come out of credit, which very often is what happens is people stream into an area and then that's their primary focus for most of their career, even if you work for a big bank. And because I had this much more holistic, I had to know all the products because I was training on them. Um, it gave me much more of a balanced sense of what you could do with money. We asked you to join us on Breakfast Television time and time again because of your way and your approach. It is a no BS approach. Were you able to, as you were growing your popularity in the world of money, were you able to punch holes in some of the theories that may not have made uh, big banking institutions happy to hear or to see? Absolutely. I mean, when I wrote Money Rules, you know, there are a whole bunch of rules in there that say things like your banker is not your friend. You know, people would sign up with a bank in college or university, and then they deal with that bank for the rest of their life. And never mind the fact that that bank didn't treat them with the same kind of respect it was treating new customers with. Um, they were missing out on all kinds of opportunities in other places, like high interest savings accounts in online banks. And so, you know, one of the things I wanted to say to people was that this is about you managing your money. Do not rely on other people to tell you what to do with your money because they have a vested interest in what they want to achieve. You're the only person that has a vested interest in what you want to achieve. Do you think that message got across? And I look at the number of books that you've written. For instance, the RRSP answer book, the retirement answer book, Shopping for Money, The Money Tree Myth, A Woman of Independent Means, Divorce, A Canadian Woman's Guide, Debt Free Forever, Easy Money, Money Rules, as you just mentioned, and, and I love this one, Money Talks, When to Say Yes, How to Say No. Do you think the message yes. is, is out there? Well, the message is out there, Ad. Now it's just a matter for people to commit to doing it. Um, this idea that um, money is hard, I'd, I'd like people to lose that. It's not hard. It's actually quite easy. All you need is grade five math to actually be able to be good with your money. You just need to be able to add, subtract, multiply, and divide. Anybody can do that. So when people say, oh, no, you know, it's just like my, my mind goes all wonky, I go, well, you know what, you need to get over that because you're going to be dealing with money your whole life. And if you don't get over it now, then all you're doing is throwing your arms up and saying, okay, I give up, I'm a failure. You're also an advocate. So in 2011, you launched a campaign advocating for changes in the way lenders assess lending criteria, particularly in credit cards. What prompted you to do that? Well, there's a thing called the credit score, which I absolutely despise, okay? And the reason I despise it is because when the credit score was created, it was never created as a credit adjudication system. In other words, it was never meant to assess how credit worthy you were. It was created to measure your profitability as a customer. And so the things you are awarded points for in the credit scoring system actually work against you in terms of a solid financial foundation. So I do not have a great credit score. And the reason I don't have a great credit score is I don't have different sources of credit that I can draw on. I only have my credit cards. And I run my credit cards up every month, and I pay them off in full. But the credit scoring system wants me to carry a smaller balance across many more sources of credit 
because then they have their hooks in me and they, they will hope that at some point I'll start paying interest. And was this campaign successful? Were you able to make change, if you'll pardon the expression? Well, you know, the thing that I ran into over and over again, which was incredibly frustrating, was people saying to me, well, no, I won't stop using my credit cards because I want to keep getting the points. And Anne, I swear, I just slapped my forehead and said, you know what? Okay, so I can't make you be smart. I can only show you what you need to do to be smart. But if you choose not to be smart, that's not on me. So multiple books, uh, many uh, contributions to magazines like Money Sense, uh, newspapers like The Globe and Mail. Then Mm -hmm. you stepped into television, and that probably was your your biggest and greatest stage to get your message out. Till Debt Do Us Part, my favorite. Tell me about that series. Okay, so the idea is that it's not so much that the debt will cause you to get a divorce. It is that your behavior, which causes the debt, will also end up causing you to get divorced. So very often people would hide things from each other when they were buying things. They would deny the level of liability they were carrying. They would um, try to circumvent things like getting their partners to co-sign for them so they would get a better interest rate. That's one of the things that um, I heard pretty regularly, and I said to people, do not do that. If your partner cannot qualify for the better interest rate on their own, there's a good reason for that. (laughs) Do not ever co-sign. I'm always fascinated and was when this series was running, the couples who hid things from each other were so willing to expose their entire financial lives to you and to this huge audience watching Till Debt Do Us Part. I don't think a lot of people realized how deep I was going to delve when they sent all that financial information. That financial information that they sent us, that told me the whole story. I could look at people's six months worth of their paperwork and I knew exactly what they were doing with their money from that because it, you know, it, it's, it's, the proof is in the writing, right? It's in black and white. And so I could see it, but I don't think because they were in such high denial, I don't think they ever thought I would see that much. Any idea how many couples actually survived their financial crisis in their marriage? No, you know, because the network would never allow, allow us to do regular follow-ups of any kind because the show was in constant rotation. They didn't want people to see a follow-up show before they had seen the actual show. And so we were denied the opportunity to go back. They did it a couple of times in a very small way. Um, I stayed in touch with some people. Lots of people got divorced. Lots of people moved on. But you know what? We do that anyway in our lives. Look at me. I've been divorced three times. So that's not so much the measure. The measure really is did you bounce back. Were you able to, having gone through that transition, get your feet back on the ground quickly? Let me ask you this. Having been divorced three times, as you say, and having written books about divorce and and having put that into aspects of Till Debt Do Us Part, do you practice what you preach? Absolutely. Um, You know, to this day, I still use a spending journal. I write every penny I spend down. And every month I post it into my budget so that I can see how I'm doing relative to what my plan was. I still do it. I'm retired. I'm living on a fixed income now. It's more important than ever that I keep track of what's going on. And in terms of divorce, uh, did you uh, come out 
on the right side of each divorce <laughs> financially? I don't know how else to put this, Gail. <laughs> Did you do Listen, okay? <laughs> unfortunately for my last husband, um, he divorced me at exactly the wrong time, okay, because I made all my money after he left. When we come back, Gail Vaz-Oxlade stands her ground with TV execs. This is In Conversation. Welcome back to In Conversation with Ann Romer on 105.9 The Region. We're back with Gail Vaz-Oxlade. In Conversation, Gail, you are fearless when it comes to finance. We go from Till Debt Do Us Part, nine seasons, so successful, and it had a great impact on everyone who watched, even people like me who was in between divorces when I watched the show. We moved to Princess. It was all about young people and money sense, and in particular, Princess, young women. Why did you decide to lift the veil on that part of money? So one of the things that occurred to us as we were going through the Tell Debt shows was that we did, we did a couple of single people, but most of it was related to the people who were in couples because that was a big part of the dynamic. So then we wanted to hit another audience. We wanted to hit an audience that had um, more variety in it. And I had actually had bigger hopes for Princess than what it turned out to be because eventually what happened was the network got committed to doing the crazy shopping girl. And that's what we did over and over and over again. But initially when we thought about it, you know, it was um, men calling out their mothers for being princesses because Mm -hmm. they wouldn't um, take care of themselves properly or uh, girls calling out their sisters or, you know, it was a much broader idea when we first started. Do you think that Money Moron, that was the next show, you know, an interesting uh, title, and a little bit um, difficult to sort of wrap your head around. We, at certain points in our lives, we all feel that we are money morons, but we don't want to admit it. So what was the purpose of that show? Again, um, I had just changed uh, production companies, and I was trying to broaden the idea out one more time so that we could hit a larger group of people um, and make the show more interesting because we had different kinds of people. Because we stayed with the same broadcaster, again, they sort of um, hemmed us in one more time. And it got got to the point where uh, I had explicitly said to the network, okay, so I've processed four couples now because they were just interested in remaking till that, right? Um, so it was, I've got processed four couples now. I said, I don't do another lick of work until you give me a single person. Boy, you are tough. (laughs) So why did you give it all up? Why did you retire? Ultimately, uh, what it came down to was the network trying to dictate to me what I should do on the show. So, for example, when we were making the last season of Till Death, um, I got an email from my production company to, to tell me that while I was doing the baby episodes, I was required by the network to give all the money every time. And I said, well, that's not going to happen. That's not how this show works. And they said, well, the network executive says that this is the way it has to be. You know network executives, right, Anne? Yes. Uh, this is the way it has to be. And I said, well, no, that's not going to be the way it, it is. And so I said, if you cast for success, we're going to end up with a whole bunch of boring shows because everybody's going to know they're going to get all the money. That's, you know, the hook is, will she give all the money, right? 
Um, by the time we got to Monday Moron, the network executives were doing things like telling me what challenges I should give because they wanted me to take away people's cars more often, or they wanted me to tell people to sell their homes more often. And up until that point, I had been in charge completely about what we did and when we did it, so that the point was made. You know, this was about teaching people. This was not about punishing people. And so when that started to happen, I stopped talking to many of the people that were needing to interact with me in order to make a successful show. And ultimately, I just draw a line in the sand and I said, okay, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I'm, not, I'm too tired of spending my days swearing at people because they're trying to tell me what to do when I know what I'm supposed to do is help people. And is that your purpose, do you think? You know, when we all take stock of what we give in life and what we get back mm-hmm. in life and what our mm-hmm. purpose for being here is, what is your purpose for being here? Well, my purpose was to help people. My purpose was to decode it, to take it out of finances and put it into English. I mean, I created a whole bunch of new terms um, relative to money. You know, I, I have a, an interesting name for an emergency fund. I call it my FU account. <laughs> and... That really resonated with people. Um, And because I put it into English, because I demystified it, more people could relate to what I was saying. You held a master class in 2020. What was that like and what was the reason for that and what was the response? Mm -hmm. So the response was fabulous. So what happened was in late 19, in late 2019, um, I was watching the bankruptcy numbers and the bankruptcy numbers were climbing dramatically. And it must have been about October or so of the year, and I said to people, listen, if you guys don't get your crap together, 2020, you're going to blow your brains out because it's only a matter of time before the crack is the fan. And if you're not prepared, you're going to have very sad life. Who wants to do a money masterclass in 2020? And a whole bunch of people put up their hands, and they said, okay, so here's the thing. If I don't get 10 retweets, or 10 responses to each tweet that I put out over, I will simply stop. You will show me you're not interested and I will simply stop. But as long as I'm getting that, I will continue. And it ended up, I did it for every day for the entire year. (laughs) And loads of people got great stuff out of it. But I have to tell you, COVID was my friend in this. Okay? Because... Um, when I got to things like the emergency fund and people were now locked down and couldn't go out and they realized that their income was threatened, all of a sudden the emergency fund didn't seem like such a strange thing anymore. And have you been helping people through this part of the pandemic? We're now in 2021. We're in the third wave. We're in Mm -hmm. lockdown and stay at home. Are people turning mm-hmm. to you for help at this point? A lot of people are in financial dire straits. Well, I made it clear that coming out of 2020, I was done with money. I mean, I said it and said it and said it and said it. There are heaps of books out there. Um, some of them are very good. Some I've written. And um, all the content exists. Um, if you can't afford to buy a book, I tell people, go to the library, borrow the book. I don't, have, I don't care how you get your hands on the information. Get your hands on the information. So I am out of the money business now, fully and completely. I am done. 
And I can attest to that. Uh, when you and I were corresponding by email about getting this interview set up, you said to me, quote, Gail is dipsy doodling her way through retirement in her two favorite places, her kitchen and her garden. She sets yes. off on a grand adventure in hobby farming next month and is giddy with anticipation. That does sound like That's a me. woman who is done with money at this point. That's right. You know, there are other things in this world still to be done. And I am lucky enough that my children are all joining me on this journey. So I'm not doing it by myself. So all the chicks are coming home to roost and we're going to have a fabulous time. So you, when we were corresponding, you were in the midst of selling your current home and purchasing, yes. I believe, the hobby farm. Did you lean on yourself for advice on how to do this properly and and financially sound way? Okay, so when we went to buy the property that we have purchased, um, the day that I put in the offer, I got a call from my real estate agent to say, okay, so their real estate agents have said there's another offer coming in. Do you want to change your offer? And I said, absolutely not. I offered asking. Okay, I see no reason to go about that. Um, and yet, there were occasions, I, I mean, I had made other offers at other places where I had offered asking and I was summarily dismissed. No, that's not enough. <laughs> okay. But I won't play that game. If, if I can't get it for what you're asking for, it, then it's not my house. When I went to sell this house, my real estate agent used the same tactics and ended up getting me like, I don't know, maybe $60,000 over asking. Good for you. Congratulations on well, that one. No, it, it sounds thank you. It sounds like it takes a lot of <laughs> I a lot ended of courage. Up more for this house. Sorry, so sorry, hon. I ended up getting more for this house than I bought the other house for. So, in other words, you are listening to your own advice. Always. Can we do a quick Q and A in terms of yes. of age and your? One word of advice. So a student in high school or university right now, what's your best advice? Start paying attention to what things are going to cost when you eventually go out and live on your own. Start working up um, that idea of taking care of yourself because just because you've graduated, it's not a magic moment that you suddenly become um, intelligent about how you're going to live your life, you have to start thinking about it early and start planning for it. New to the workforce, what's your advice to those individuals? It may be very, very hard to save for the future while you're earning not a lot of money. And if you can't save anything yet, I understand because lots of people are sort of piecing together um, an income from multiple jobs. But if you can, if you're spending a penny on cigarettes, if you're spending a penny on booze, if you're spending a penny on wheat, if you're spending a penny on extra clothes, you have the money you're choosing to allocate it separately. Start saving as soon as you can. The earlier you start, the less amount you have to save every single month. Young couples or even solo, first house, uh, trying to deal with a student loan advice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Be sure that before you make any large commitments that you work out by practicing first how it's going to affect your, the rest of your life. There is no point in moving into a home only to find out that you can't buy furniture or go out with friends because you're committed every red cent you're making to paying down a mortgage. 
that's ridiculous. You have to have a life too. So this whole thing about money is not just about the money. It's also about balancing it with everything else you want from your life. You're laid off. You're unemployed, which many people are during this pandemic. Advice. Mm-hmm. Don't hide it. Make sure you tell everybody you're looking for a job. If you hide it, it's because you're embarrassed or whatever, you think that you're never going to get another job. Um, that is no way to, you know, figure it out. When you tell people where you are, you tell people what you're trying to achieve, they will help you. That's the nature of people. The people who don't help you aren't your friends, so dust them. About to retire. Advice. Practice before you actually retire. Figure out how much your retirement income is going to be when you are retired and start living on it like that before you retire so you have a sense of what's going to go away and what you're going to get to keep. And actually retired advice. Mm-hmm. Retirement has a bunch of stages. I like to call them the go-go stage, the slow-go stage, and the no-go stage. When you are anticipating your retirement or when you simply move into retirement, make sure that you are budgeting appropriate to where you are in your life and what you want to achieve without forgetting that there is still a future that you have to take care of. Gail Vaz-Oxlade, you're one of the most optimistic people I have ever met and one of the most courageous. What is it that keeps you going? Oh, I don't know, Anne. I think I, think I love life and, and I love the future. I find the future fascinating. And I look to what's going to come next. I mean, if five years ago anybody had told us where we'd be today, we would not have believed them. So I like that idea about what life will be like five years from now, 10 years from now. I think that's fabulous. Is it safe to say that you are the title of one of your books, A Woman of Independent Means? Yes. I made sure, you know, my mother drilled it into my head when I was quite young that the only way I would ever be secure was if I made my own security, that I could never count on anyone else. I had to be self-secure. And so that's what I did. And I've, I've done the same thing to my children. I've tried to encourage them to recognize that it's their life and they get to make the decisions about what that life should look like, but they also have to make the decisions about how they're going to afford it. And if that nose of yours smells BS, what do you do? I call it out immediately. Um, When I see things that just don't make sense, I just say so because I'm not doing any of my friends or family uh, service if I simply look at them and nod and say, oh, that sounds great. Um, It's sort of my mandate in life is to tell the truth. And so I tell the truth. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Well, that makes sense to me, dollars and cents when it comes to you. Gail Vaz-Oxlade, thank you so much for joining us in conversation. Always a pleasure. Gail Vazoxlade, everything in her life she's done with principle and courage of conviction. Bye for now. Follow In Conversation with Ann Romer on Twitter at 1059 The Region. This is 1059 The Region.